we've been looking at Colossians, I think I'd like to kind of just to get our minds wrapped around the whole picture again of, of where we are. Let's just read the first um, uh, 10 verses and of chapter 1, and then we'll get into the lesson. Colossians 1, 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers at Christ, in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so, from the day we heard it, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. So, I, I should have written this down, but I didn't. Paul has a, in the English, it doesn't necessarily show up this way. I, it did... Um, partially from verses 3 through 8, I guess. But in the Greek, this is, I, I can't remember, it was 120-something words in the Greek to get to verse, I think maybe it was verse 20, and it's all one sentence. You know, and I mean, Paul was just, you talk about a writer, you know, that he would sit down and run a thought for that long. Can you imagine that, The those of you that are teachers or homeschool teachers? You know, what would you do if your child handed you a paper and had, you know, a hundred and over a hundred words in one sentence? But that's how Paul wrote. He was, I just imagine him being in, in jail and Epaphras coming to him with the report of what was going on. And, and uh, I mean, you just think of the work of the Spirit in his life to just launch into something like that. You know, have you ever had a writing moment like that? I haven't, but you know, they might go in our minds. But you know, just um, he just launches into that. And last week we we were looking particularly in the last couple of weeks um, in verse four, uh, he this prayer you know that he's praying for them the, when he's he heard of their faith in Christ Jesus, the love that they have for the saints, the hope that's laid up for them in heaven, and. You know, the, the fact that he was just so inspired and excited and kind of rejuvenated almost, I think, in jail over the fact that these people were experiencing those, those you know, kind of the Bible trios, the faith, hope, and love. But here, as we said before, he uh, reversed the words love and, and hope there. But <clears throat> we talked last week, uh, I think we were ending on the, the thought of the hope that we have in heaven and how we don't reflect upon that enough and and how you know we as Christians involved in this world can lose sight of the hope of heaven and 
I think I mentioned that little booklet I've got by Randy Alcorn on heaven. That's kind of a, I, I love, there's still one, you know, has a question, you know, will we know each other in heaven is one of them. And then it's just got less than a page and a half answer on each one of those. But, you know, things, I, I guess, I, I can just speak to you about my life. You know, I get caught up in the things of this world that I enjoy, all right? And so the hope of heaven sometimes may start to fade in my thinking. Um, you know, I get to thinking, well, you know, what about my wife and, you know, the relationship we have here? That's really good, you know, and I enjoy that. So why would I be thinking about that? You know what I mean? Does that resonate with anybody? So what do you do with to cultivate your the hope of heaven for you? You know, what do you, what do you guys think? You know, and I guess does the let me say it this way, does thinking about that excite you or sadden you? Does thinking about that enhance your um desire to love and serve God, and as Paul says in verse 10, to be able to walk in a manner worthy of being called a Christian. What do you think? This would be the time that one of you all says something. Huh? Am I the only one? You're making me feel weird now. Am I the only one that thinks no, like that? I look forward to it because then I won't sin. I'm reminded every day when I sin how I cannot wait either for Christ to return or take me home. Mm-hmm. That burden will be lifted and I can worship him without any barriers. It's mm-hmm. just an amazing thought. Okay. Good. Anybody else? Not just me. You know, the suffering of other people and what hurts your heart. You know, sure. Yeah, that's a, those are great points. I had a dad call me this week of a young man that has just been on a five-year <laughs> downward spiral. And he's 23 now, maybe, and is still there, right? And probably in a worse degree than he's been than five years ago when I got to know the family. And... uh the dad said this to me this week. Yeah, you know, and I and I can't imagine the struggle as a parent that this guy, you know, that this man went through to get him to where he said this. But he said, you know, Tim, whether or not he or let me think of exactly how he said it, something like this. He said, you know, Tim, um, if he doesn't make it to heaven, I'm not going to miss him in heaven. Does that make sense? Because he knew, because he said, because there's not going to be any sorrow. There's not going to be any tears in heaven. So he'd come to grips with the fact, I think he had wrestled so long in his life with the fact that my son is spiraling towards hell very quickly. And of course that would devastate him if it happened now while he's still alive, right? But he said, you know, if he doesn't make it, I, you know, that's not something that for all of eternity that I'm going to be wringing my hands over. You know, and I can't imagine as a parent getting to that point, but I think it's good for him that he got there because now he can probably parent better. 
Um, but does that make sense? I mean, that's a different way of looking at heaven, but that's what you were saying, Gail. I think that, you know, that there won't be any sorrow there. There won't be any tears there. All of the gosh, I wish mentality that we sometimes fall into here won't be there. And Paul knew that that was the case for these people, that they, you know, the hope that is stored up for them in heaven, that they they were focused, they were able to focus on that. And Paul heard about that. Epaphras gave him that report. Hey, these folks are hope, you know, they're focused on heaven. And um, last week we ended with this quote by C.S. Lewis where he says, Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. You know, so that's kind of a call for us, if you will, to to get more radically focused on God and and uh, his love for us. So then Paul moves um, into a celebration of the gospel, the success of the gospel, I should say, in verses 5 uh, through 8, um, second half of verse 5, where he says, Of this you have heard before the word of... Uh, excuse me, (laughs) of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our fellow, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So here Paul's engaged, I think, in some justified um, hyperbole because the gospel hadn't spread all over the world. I mean, you not, you know, wasn't in the United States because the United States wasn't there, right? So, but so he's using this hyperbole. I think fine to to do it the way he is. He he's celebrating the dynamic power and and how universal the gospel really is. Unlike, remember, the enemy that we're talking about here in Colossae were, were the Gnostics and their elitist foolishness that they were teaching. And, and the good news of Jesus Christ was for everybody, not just some elite group of people. And every day, I think you could say at this time, which is, this would be the same for us today as well, it is still reaching new people each and every day. I've got a couple quotes to show us how rapid the gospel was spreading. This is um, uh, historian Justin Martyr. He wrote about the middle of the second century. So, you know, how much history there was then, I'm not sure, but second century. He, quote, he says, quote, There is no people, Greek or barbarian, or of any other race, by whatever appellation or manners they may be distinguished. However ignorant of arts or agriculture, whether they dwell in tents or wander about in covered wagons, among whom prayers and thanksgivings are not offered in the name of the crucified Jesus to the Father and Creator of all things. So even in the middle of the second century, Justin Martyr is saying that, you know, this gospel, it's, it's, it's reaching every class of people that there is that comes across it. Um, half a century later, uh, Tertullian, he writes, we are but of yesterday, and yet we, are, we already fill our cities, islands, camps, your palace, senate, and forum 
we have left you only your temples. So again, Christians everywhere. And then R.H. Glover, uh, bring it more into our time, uh, 1870s to mid-1900s, writing on the progress of world missions states, quote, on the basis of all the data available, it has been estimated that by the close of the apostolic period, the total number of Christian disciples had reached half a million. So by the end of the writing of the New Testament, half a million Christians in that part of the world. That's a lot, right? And today, of course, we know that it's, it's much, much larger than that as the gospel spreads. But no human being was ever more effective in proclaiming the good news than Paul himself. Right? He was, he was the man. Why? What do you think made him such an evangelist? What do you think? His changed life. Sorry, go ahead. His changed life. His changed right? life. Okay. Yeah. Crucifying Christians. Yeah. God laid him alone, took his sight, and got his attention. A radical, okay, radical experience, right? <laughs> I was going to say, God had set him apart before, before the foundation of the world to, to be this ambassador, so. Okay. So, um... I mean, both of those, right. So before the foundation of the world, God had set him apart, and then the radical experience that he had later, you know, in life is God knocked him to the ground, blinded him, and took him through some uh, really interesting circumstances, right? You know, is that any different for us? Did God know us before the foundation of the world and set us apart? Yeah. And then was your experience radical? You know, when you really look at it, it is, isn't it? I remember one time going on a mission trip with some people and, you know, depending on your background, right? Mine was horrific. Well, what about the goody two-shoe that grew up in the church? Just as dead? Yep. Right? I mean, it is radical, Conversion is very radical because we're talking about birth, right? You, got, you must be born again. You must be born from above. So, you know, I guess this is very convicting to me because why isn't it written of me that, you know, that why am I not the most famous evangelist? Why is it Paul? You know, you know, did when was the last time I talked about Christ to a complete stranger? Much less, I mean, has anybody that you know been locked up in jail for preaching the gospel? Nobody I know has been. I know a guy, one time I visited a guy in jail, and he said, oh, Tim, there's this guy in here that he's just anointed. And I said, really? Well, what's he in for? I don't know. It's like his 10th time. And I was like, I said, get away. Step away from that man. If he's preaching the gospel in jail and he's been locked up 10 times, we're not preaching the gospel. Get away, you know. So we're not talking about that. We're talking about, you know, Paul was locked up for preaching. I, my One of my heroes that's uh, human heroes, Paul was human too, but uh, more modern, but yet 400-something years ago, uh, John Bunyan, right? You remember Bunyan's life and Pilgrim's Progress? And he was locked up in jail, had a wife and kids, and he was a poor tinkerer, you know. He just 
fixed pots and pans for a living. You know, you don't make a whole lot of money doing that. You, you know, the, that's where that word, isn't that neat? The word he was, we don't use that profession anymore. If you're tinkering around now, your wife thinks you're wasting time. But anyway, <laughs> Bunyan was in jail, right, for that. And by the way, uh, John Owen tried to get him out of jail repeatedly. And uh, we wouldn't have Pilgrim's Progress today if Owen had been successful. So God trumped him there. But, you know, does that convict you at all, though, that Paul, you know, the, the way that he served Christ and, and uh, his conversion was no different than any of ours. And here we are, right? But um, even though Paul took this lead in spreading the gospel, very important for us to see that in verse 6, he's placing the emphasis upon the fact that God's power and God's grace uh, in the go- is what really caused the gospel to bear fruit and grow. It wasn't Paul. You know, we, we learned back in um, Mark chapter 4 when Tim Ryan was teaching us in that section, we saw this principle there. I'm going to read Mark 4, 26 real quick. And he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and, it ri- and rises night and day and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade and then the ear then the full grain in in the year. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. So that's kind of, we we shouldn't underestimate the vitality of the seed that's scattered. It's not up to you and I for that people get saved. It's up to you and for us to be proclaiming the gospel. But the gospel doesn't, success doesn't depend on us, right? It's God's work. And, and he is pleased to use mankind to accomplish that. But we do need to be about throwing the seeds out there, but God's the one that brings the, the growth. You know, you may sow seeds your whole life and never have anybody profess Christ in, in front of you, but you, you're still responsible in to, to sow those seeds, knowing, though, that, you know, somebody else might come along after you and water that seed. And I remember one time I was in a convenience store. This was shortly after the lottery was approved here, and and I had to wait in line. Imagine I was inconvenienced as people bought lottery tickets. So when it was my turn up at the register, I said to the lady, I said, I sure am glad I don't have to pay that tax. And she's like, what tax? And I said, that educational tax that all these people are standing here giving you money for, and you're giving them some kind of silly little ticket for their tax receipt. And she looked at me like I was crazy, and she said, so you don't gamble? And I said, no, ma'am, I don't. And she said, well, do you plant a garden? And I said, yes. And she said, well, then you're gambling, aren't you? I said, no, ma'am. I said, I'm just putting, preparing the soil, putting the seed in the ground, and allowing God to cause the growth of that seed. And that's what the gospel is, right? We need to be doing that. The gospel doesn't depend on me, but I, but God privileges me with the with the gift of being able to proclaim it. So this miracle of this little church in in the Lycos Valley was cause for Paul to celebrate. And uh, I think it's cause for every church in the world to celebrate today because, as we've seen here, and it's the same for us, we are, as a church, as Christians, we are God's holy and faithful 
what's the word we used last week? Saints, right? We're set apart. We're saints. We're brothers and sisters with, with a common father. You ever think about that? Brothers and sisters. I've got, I think I've said this recently, that you know, I've got, bro, uh, not brothers, I've got sisters biologically that aren't Christians, and you guys are, and I am, so we're really brothers and sisters, not my biological. That's, that's you know, we're going to be spending that all of eternity together. We're, we are in Christ, part of this mystery that he calls his body. The, the grace of God, as these people in, in the Lycos Valley, was the, God's grace was poured on them, it's poured on us as well. And, as we talked about last week, we have peace. We have the peace of God, and that's as a result of that grace. And God has given us faith, love, and hope, faith in Christ, love for all the saints, and the hope that we have in heaven. Well, he continues here in verse 7 and says, Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our fellow, beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. So Epaphras, he's the preacher at the church at Colossae. He's the one that planted the church. He's the minister there. He's the one that has come to see Paul in Rome and bring, you know, for advice, as we've said, but these Gnostics are there. They're trying to turn things upside down. Epaphras doesn't know what to do. He goes and and seeks instructions from Paul. And by calling him our, our beloved fellow servant and faithful minister of Christ on on your behalf, Paul's doing three things. He's he's placing his stamp of approval on Epaphras. And uh, I also think that by implication, he's condemning the Gnostic system. And he's saying that if you reject Epaphras, you're rejecting me. Um, you know, a lot of times, um, I mean, I'm, I'm there with, with sometimes in my thinking, you know, we don't want the lay guy, if you will, right? I mean, here is Paul, and uh, Epaphras has gone to him, and in, he's, he's, he's approving Epaphras so that these people can't get into the mindset of, well, he's not the main dude. We want the main dude. You know, we want pastor, right? We want the guy at the top dog at the seminary. You're not good enough. We want, you know, and Paul is saying he, he's encouraging them that Epaphras is the same as if, as if I'm there with you, right? Um, this is really all kind of building on verse 3 when he says, while praying for you, we are always thanking God. You know, that, that controls every thought that flows from verses 4 through 8, the fact that they're um, thanking God for what's going on there while they're praying. And in verse 8 he says, um, in reference to Epaphras, and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Now that's the same statement that he expressed earlier in verse 4, where he says, since we heard of your faith in Christ, Jesus, and the love that you have for all the saints. Paul and the other apostles regarded love as, as the most precious of the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, we see that over and over in, in 1 Corinthians 13, 13. It says, 
and the greatest of these is love. Colossians 3.14, and above all these put on love. 1 John 4.8, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. 1 John 3.14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. 1 Peter 4.8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. So, wasn't that also, that, that was John and Paul writing, but wasn't that also the emphasis of Christ himself, right? First, or I'm sorry, John 13, 1, Jesus said, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He said in 13, 34, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. And in John fifteen twelve, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. All right? So probably in order to prevent the impression from taking root, and, and I've said this I think each week while I've taught up to this point in Colossians, that Epaphras didn't paint too he he Paul didn't want the people in Colossae to think that Epaphras came trash talking. Right, and, and so Paul stresses the fact that his worthy fellow worker had given him an enthusiastic report. You know, don't you ever wonder when you know that somebody has gone to a meeting with somebody and they're going to be talking about you or maybe your ministry or whatever you're doing. Do you ever wonder, oh, I wonder what he's going to be saying. Man, I hope, he, you know, you take him out to coffee and you wine and dine him, you know, and so that they give you a favorable report, right? Do you ever think like that? I mean, in business, maybe, you know, you would. Does it transfer over into your discipleship life? You know, I, of course it does. You know, we're, we have this law of indwelling sin that causes us to want our best. So, uh, But um, Paul wrote this way so that they would know that Epaphras didn't do that. He didn't just talk trash about him. He also gave Paul a detailed account of their love. This is the love for all the saints that Paul was talking about there. But note the modifier in verse 8. Your love in the Spirit. And I think it's interesting that, um, to understand that Christian love is decided, decidingly regarded as the fruit of the indwelling Spirit. We can't truly love without the indwelling Holy Spirit and manifest manifesting his fruit. But so what might this love look like for us today? What do you think? What is love anyway in this Christian manner that we're talking about here? I watched a uh, a debate thing. I can't remember the guy's name, uh, but it was a atheist college student debating this Christian uh, professor and uh, this kid was talking about that basically man is good you know now of course scripture just blows that away but he didn't the guy did a great job in defending that but what about for us because we all I guess what I'm getting at is you all know as well as I do a lot of people that aren't believers that seem to manifest love so what are we talking about what is Love from a biblical perspective as one of the fruits of the Spirit of God. What do you think? 
Dying to self? It's focused on others rather than yourself. It's okay. serving. It's not about words, it's about deeds. Good. Yeah. Anything else? I mean, it, it absolutely, that's right. I, I, my wife and I had a counseling case recently, and um, the lady said uh, something like, um, well, I can't tell that he loves me. They've only been married three years, and um, he said, well, I've asked you to tell me what it is you want me to do to show you that I love you. And I'm thinking, wrong thing. <laughs> you know, and she's like, I shouldn't have to tell you. Correct response. Um, so, I mean, he, he said, I just don't feel it anymore. And I was like, wrong answer. I mean, this guy was digging a pit, right? So, I remember years ago meeting with a couple and a guy sat across the table from me and he said, well, what is love? And I hadn't thought about it that much. I mean, I said kind of, so John 3.16 is what popped into my mind, right? For God so loved the world that he did what? He gave his only begotten son. So I think what y'all are talking about is, is right. It's getting rid of yourself. It's serving others. It's others focused. It's, it's, me doing something for somebody without them asking for it. And I think even more particularly, if you run it through John 3.16, it's uh, me doing something, I'll just say like for my wife, where I recognize she has a need, she's not asking for that need to be fulfilled, and I sacrificially fulfill that need. Is that a good definition? And so I then typically will say to the husband, so what is something that you know that she needs, that you have the ability to give, and she's not asking for it. And the guys will sit there and scratch their heads. You know what the number one answer is? What do you think? Starts with a T and ends with an E. You got an I and an M in the middle. Time. I just want more of his time. And then I'll look at the guy and say, is there a way that you could give her more time? Well, yeah, I guess I could not this, that, or the other, right? So that's what I think love could look like as we sacrificially serve one another. Did Paul serve people in the New Testament by sacrificially giving? Of, of course, what about, you know, and Jesus, of course. So what would that look like practically for us today? What could you do today or tomorrow or whatever for uh, somebody? So I'll let you ponder those. Guys, your brain should be spinning now. So, um, here's a really good one. How about manifesting love towards others through prayer for them? Would that make a difference in their lives? Have you, have you ever wondered, um, how are we to pray for the church? How are we to pray for members of the body? first and foremost for our spouse and our children, but then the rest of the body. Have you ever wondered that? I mean, that's a, you know, oh, Lord, please bless my wife today, amen. You know, or Lord, please bless the pastor today, amen. But um, Paul gives us a classic example of this type of prayer, I think, in beginning in verse 9. His example tells us how to pray for the knowledge and then really the conduct of the church, if you will. 
So a prayer for knowledge. Look at verse 9. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So I think it's significant that Paul prayed for, their, for the Colossians' knowledge because they were under siege by, what did we say the word, the Gnostics? You know, that was all about knowledge, right? They were under siege by people that were telling them they needed a better knowledge, a deeper knowledge. And the Gnostics were teaching that Christ, again, he's okay. It's a good starting point, would be their thinking. But there's so much more than that. Uh, There's so much more you could experience if only, if only you would incorporate this Gnostic system that we have developed. And, you know, I'm telling you that we've talked about that the last two weeks. That's a real guarding issue for the church today, is that we stay away from that kind of thinking. And um, th- their system, you know, they promised special understanding. And, and that appealed to the natural elitist person, right? I mean, you're going to be set apart if you do this. You'll really be set apart. And some of them had fallen prey to that. So Paul's prayer that, that the Colossians be filled with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding just pounded their problem head on. And I got a long quote from a commentator I want to read on this about this this word that Paul used for knowledge versus what the Gnostics used for knowledge. Listen to this. Um, This knowledge for which Paul prayed was set in bold contrast with that of the Gnostics because Paul used a word for knowledge which is almost a technical term for the decisive knowledge of God which is involved in conversion to the Christian faith. So he wasn't talking about worldly knowledge now. You get that? Paul is talking about the type of knowledge of really deeply, intuitively knowing and loving God versus information. The Gnostic's characteristic word for knowledge was gnosis, but Paul used the word epigenosis a reference to full knowledge for the Colossians. Knowing that they have this personal knowledge of Christ and his will, Paul prayed for an epigenosis which would fill them in such a way that it would instill a wisdom and understanding which was singularly spiritual. From Paul's perspective, a deep growing knowledge of Christ and his will is of the greatest importance to the spiritual life of all Christians. Isn't that awesome? So he was showing, you think their stuff's superior. I pray that you have a knowledge of God himself, a personal knowledge of God himself. And he says in Philippians 1.9, and this is my prayer, that, you, that your love may abound more and more in the knowledge and depth of insight. Then Ephesians 1.17, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom, and revelation so that you may know him better. And here in Colossians, when he prayed, or when he said, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will, he's using a language of of great intensity because he knew that spiritual knowledge is the foundation of the Christian life. And I'm telling you, that is not what's being taught in churches across our country. They are not teaching that a knowledge, a personal, 
knowledge of God is is what brings out a fruitful Christian life. So what are they teaching? See, what do y'all observe? What do you think? Feel good. Psychology. I talked to a person one time, some of y'all have heard me say this before, that I told my wife, if that person says the word feel one more time, I'm going to slap them. (laughs) You know, I mean, it was like, are you kidding me? You know, I, I just feel, you know what? I don't, I don't, well, I don't feel you. <laughs> right? uh, so, you know, if we really want to know how to walk the Christian life, should we be going on our feelings or on our thinking? What do you think? On our thinking, right? Where does everything in your life start? Everything. You aren't going to do anything. In the heart, the mind, the soul, the spirit. That's all one thing, right? It all starts with our thinking. We, you're not going to do anything without thinking. Well, now you can uh, tie your shoe without thinking. You can pretty much drive a car without thinking anymore. You know, if you're a certain age, you can do this without thinking. You know, my granddaughter had a test in school on an, on an iPhone. And uh, the teacher gave a, said, he, he, he said, or she said, I'm going to say something. And well, he gave everybody his number. And they all had it in. Everybody's ready to text. And um, he said, I'm going to um, start saying a sentence. The first one to get it, get it and send it wins. And um, he started, I don't know, composer of the month, Wolfgang Mozart. You know, you know, and I mean, within seconds, literally seconds, the entire class had it. You know, and somebody beat everybody, of course. But they can do that without thinking now. So I'm not talking about those kind of things. But real life situations, we have to think, right? And in the realm of people that I deal with that are struggling with the sin of addiction, um, you know, addiction is not something that just happens. It's thought out, right? And the reason it is this way is because the reason we have to guard our, our, our thinking, right? We have to guard that. Um, Proverbs 4.23 says, Guard your hearts with all diligence, because from it flows all the springs of life. So everything you do in your life comes out of your thinking, out of your heart. So our thinking is then affects our feelings. And then what? What do our feelings affect? Our actions. Yeah, our behavior. And boom, 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 you go. So I had a text early this morning, and the guy wanted to know if I uh, dealt with any uh, OCD people. And... Um, a pulse, uh, what is it? Yeah, that. And uh, so Kit was there, and I said, you know, she's, she's the, the one that knows all this stuff. I just do what she says. Um, I said, well, you know, how does biblical counseling, of, you know, how do you counsel, biblically counsel somebody with OCD? And she said, well, you know, I think the best way to approach that to start with, she's just putting her makeup on, just these thoughts are just flowing, you know. And she's like, um, 
I just think that, uh, you know, it's, it's just all under the sovereignty of God if you really think about it. You know, I mean, is our world out of order and who's in charge of that? Well, you know, Satan, the prince of the power of the air, but God ultimately. So people have to be okay with that. So um, thinking, right? It's a matter of controlling our thinking. And so having a true epigenosis knowledge of God is going to affect the way that we act today. It's going to affect the way we respond to our loved ones today. It's going to affect everything in our lives. So we can't just go on this worldly knowledge like the Gnostics wanted the people of Colossae to have. We can't go on the worldly knowledge that the world wants you and I to operate on today. We have to go with the knowledge of God's will for our lives, right? God does not put a premium on ignorance. Listen to this. Warren Wiersbe um, says that he once heard a preacher say, I didn't never go to school. I'm just an ignorant Christian, and I'm glad I is. Warren Wiersbe commented in response, a man does not have to go to school to gain spiritual intelligence, but neither should he magnify his ignorance. Right? Isn't that good? I'm not talking about going to school to get smart. That's not what we're talking about here. Spiritual knowledge comes, as we all know, through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And John, uh, Jesus lays that out in John chapter 16, and he reveals... Uh, uh, in, in John 17, the fact that Christ gives us the this, this special saving knowledge of himself, and then we have the Holy Spirit working in conjunction with that, and the scriptures become the primary source of our knowledge, right? So you could be the most intellectually, school-wise, ignorant person in the world and have a full knowledge of the true living God. Isn't that great? You know, I mean, I'm all for going to school, but we can't put that premium on somebody for knowing God. The scriptures become the primary source of knowledge for the believer as, as they're studied in and through the power of the Holy Spirit that lives in us. So this produces a Christian mind, which in fact is what Paul was praying for, a Christian mind. Uh, commentator Harry Blamiers said, quote, This is a mind which is trained to handle life with a framework constructed of Christian presuppositions. It is this mind, the epigenosis, which God blesses. Psalm 1, Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Isn't that great? It's the word of God that we delight in. It's the law of God that we delight in. And that word meditate there, I know some of y'all have heard me say this before, but this just flat out helps me understand what that means. It means the same thing as a cow chewing its cud, right? Have you ever gone by a cow pasture and, and nobody's got their head to the ground and they're all chewing? You ever see that? I mean, how in the world does that happen? You could sit there and look at them for hours and they're still chewing. They're meditating. That's the same word that we need to be using. Uh, we've got, and the reason is, is cows have four stomachs. So when you do see them eating, they're filling up all four stomachs, and then they can stand around for hours, and they regurgitate one stomach at a time, and they chew on it. 
That's us in the Word of God, meditating, grinding it, chewing it, swallow it back down, bring up another one. That other verse I got memorized. And hopefully I got more than four that I can chew on, you know. <laughs> so, right? No, but that's what it is. That's how we do that. What's that? So you got to start somewhere. Yeah, you got to start somewhere, right. One stomach at a time. So, you know, um, again, that is... Well, I love scripture memory. It's one of my pet peeves with the smartphone deal today. You know, nobody memorizes scripture anymore. They just pull out the phone. Tick, tick, tick. But... My comment to that is you're not supposed to do that driving down the road. And you can regurgitate a scripture that's really in your heart if you've got it memorized. So um, Joshua 1.8 is another one. Quote, do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it when? Day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. So really, you know, it's completely useless to try and serve God without knowing what he desires of us, right? And how are we going to know what he desires from us? Not by just aimlessly walking through the world, but by spending time in his word. Uh, The kind of knowledge that Paul's talking about here is the penetrating insight into God's wonderful, redemptive revelation of Christ. And we see that as, uh, uh, if you look at verse 10 there, where he says, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. There it is. I've been reading this little book by Sinclair Ferguson. I highly recommend it. Um, it's called A Heart for God. Listen to this quote he gives for there, from there. True knowledge of God is not learned from books, although they may help us. It is not learned in theological colleges, although they should encourage it. It is not merely increased information about God, although such information should stimulate it. No, the knowledge of God is a personal knowledge because it is the knowledge of a personal God. It is received by those alone who seek to know him in a spirit of dependence upon him and who ask for his spirit to lead them into the truth. Right, so And the reason that is so important is because this clear knowledge is heart-transforming, life-renewing knowledge. Right? You know, people in my world talk about recovery all the time. That is a horrible word. I don't, do you want to recover to what you were before Christ? I certainly don't. I'll be back there doing what I was doing. Right? It's transforming, a transformed life. That's what we're after. Right, And Paul prays that they may be filled with this rich, deep, experiential knowledge of God's will. Um, well, I guess we'll pick up there next week. It's seven after. They didn't want us to be done at a certain time. Somebody said that recently. But any questions on that? Um, think about this that this week, though. You know, this... Knowledge of God and what you can do in your life to personally enhance that. Any questions?